Hey there, this is Jan Adkins, the Explainer General for the Nonfiction Minute podcast. This fine day, we continue our focus on Black History Month with three new perspectives. The first listen is from our Jim Whiting, speaking about a woman who was just tired, tired of giving in. Hi, I'm Jim Whiting, and this is the mother of the civil rights movement. When seamstress Rosa Parks boarded a bus after work in Montgomery, Alabama, on December 1st, 1955, she had no idea she was about to make history. At that time, Montgomery buses were strictly segregated. According to city law, Whites had the right to the first few rows of seats. Under a long-standing custom, blacks had to give up their seats as additional whites boarded. So when that happened, the driver ordered Parks and three other blacks to move further back. The other three did. Parks didn't. The driver repeated his order. Again, Parks refused. She was arrested. Years later, a legend grew up that she was tired from a long day on her feet. But as she explained, no, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. Black leaders, who had long shared her frustration, sensed an opportunity. They quickly formed the Montgomery Improvement Association, MIA, and selected a young minister who had just moved to Montgomery as leader. His name was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Under his leadership, Montgomery Blacks ordered a boycott of the bus system. They used many methods of alternate transportation, sometimes walking for an hour or even more. Despite White's burning of several churches and an explosion that destroyed Dr. King's home, they persisted day after day, week after week month after month. Since blacks formed about 75% of the normal ridership, the loss of their fares began crippling their system. Finally, on December 20th, the following year, Montgomery repealed the law requiring segregated buses. The victory also catapulted Dr. King to national prominence. Parks didn't fare so well. She was fired from her job and received numerous death threats. She and her husband moved to Detroit. Honors began pouring in. In 2000, Time magazine named Rosa Parks, often called the mother of the civil rights movement, as one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century. Parks, another honor that year. In 1994, the white supremacist group Ku Klux Klan had announced a plan to clean up a portion of Highway I-55 near St. Louis, Missouri under the federal Adopt-a-Highway program. That meant signs would be posted to acknowledge the Klan's public service. The Missouri Department of Transportation objected, but a series of court cases concluding in 2000 deemed the objection as unconstitutional. The state quickly responded by naming that portion 
of I-55, the Rosa Parks Freeway. The Klan never did clean it out. Our next recording is from Doreen Rappaport. It's an exciting courtroom drama with a wow finish. Hi, this is Doreen Rappaport for the Nonfiction Minute. Court. Seven white guards ringed the courtroom. Two more stood at Shadrach Minkin's side. His lawyer, Robert Morris, a black member of the Boston Vigilance Committee, a group of abolitionists who helped runaway slaves like Minkins, talked softly to him. Five other white men, who were also abolitionists, stood behind Morris. Shadrach appreciated their support, but he knew it wouldn't matter. His three months of freedom in Boston, Massachusetts, were over. He would be dragged back to Norfolk, Virginia, and his owner, John Debris. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 had been passed a year earlier. If runaway slaves were tracked down in the free states, they had to be returned to their owners. The guards started letting a few people at a time into the courtroom until it was packed with over 150 black men and about 50 white men. Morris went up with Debris' lawyer to speak to the judge. I need more time to prepare my client's case, Morris told the judge. Debris' lawyer protested. The judge agreed to give Morris a few more days. Then he ordered the courtroom cleared. Most of the white men hurried out, not one black man moved. Clear the court, the bailiff shouted. No one moved. The guards walked threateningly toward the black spectators, and they reluctantly got up to leave. The guard opened the courtroom door just wide enough for one man at a time to get out. Shadrach watched them leave. Morris was the last. When the door was opened for him, 20 black men and a good number of whites pushed into the courtroom. The guards on either side of Shadrach pressed him close. The seven guards along the wall tried to move toward Shadrach, but the crowd moved more quickly and pressed them back. Two men hoisted Shadrach to his feet. Take him out the side door, someone shouted. A guard's voice echoed in Shadrach's ears as the crowd ran triumphantly out the side courtroom door, down the stairs, out into the street with their prize. Five days later, on February 20th, 1851, Shadrach arrived in Canada, shepherded by various Underground Railroad conductors along the way. His rescue caused an uproar. Southerners demanded an investigation. Northern abolitionists insisted the Federal Slave Act was illegal. Eight men, including Morris, were arrested, but the charges were dropped. Eighteen months later, Shadrach was married and running a barber shop in Montreal. Our Amy Nathan is up next to give us a, a deeper understanding of a powerful song. Hello, my name is Amy Nathan, and the story I'm going to share with you today is called We Shall Overcome, The Power of a Song. The song, We Shall Overcome, was an important part of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It gave hope and courage to thousands of blacks and whites who protested peacefully against unfair treatment of African Americans. The song is easy to sing, but its words carry a powerful message. Here's its main verse. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome some day. Oh, deep in my heart, 
I do believe we shall overcome someday. Often protesters faced hostile crowds, were arrested, or even beaten up when they took part in nonviolent demonstrations that called for all Americans, no matter their skin color, to have the same right to vote and be treated fairly in restaurants, stores, businesses, schools, buses, trains, and even amusement parks. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a main leader of the civil rights movement, urged demonstrators not to fight back no matter how badly they were treated. This song helped them do that. Holding hands and joining their voices in We Shall Overcome during demonstrations or in jail helped them feel they weren't alone and that despite the danger, their efforts would lead to a better America. The protest did indeed lead to new laws being passed. The 1964 Civil Rights Law makes it illegal for any business that serves the public to discriminate against people because of race, religion, gender, or national origin. The 1965 Voting Rights Law outlaws rules that make it hard for blacks to vote. News about these nonviolent protesters and their song spread around the world. Before long, people protesting for fair treatment in other countries began singing We Shall Overcome in their own languages. It has been sung by demonstrators in such varied countries as India, Czechoslovakia, Romania, China, and Britain. While I was doing research for a book on civil rights, a man told me how the song helped him when he was surrounded by a hostile mob that hurled insults and some rocks during a 1963 demonstration at an amusement park that refused to let in blacks. When police arrived to arrest the protesters, not the stone thrower, the demonstrators held hands and sang the song. Great stories, gang. But that's it for today's Nonfiction Minute podcast. This is the Explainer General, Jan Adkins, over and out.